the bottom line is we have to be our own advocates and our dog's advocates. You're listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 82 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. Have you ever had one of those experiences, particularly with your working career life, where it seemed like it was the worst thing that ever happened to you to lose a job or to have a job change, but then it turned out to be like the best thing that ever happened to you? I know for sure my husband had an experience like this back in 2010, and it led to him having a career change that has been the best move, especially for his mental and emotional state ever since. Well, you're definitely going to hear about how this type of scenario played out for today's guest, Kay Stewart. Kay might be one of the most knowledgeable people I've encountered on the topic of what to feed your dog. Which, she'll tell you, is kind of a funny thing, because up until just a few years ago, she was a kibble feeder, and she thought that was what you were supposed to do, because that's what she had always been taught in her career as a vet tech. I recently got to interview holistic veterinarian Dr. Ruth Roberts over on the Alternative Dog Moms podcast, and I was so excited to find out that she has an online store where she's curated all of the best natural health products for your dog. If you are just as obsessed with keeping your dog happy and healthy like I am, then you're going to want to check this out immediately. I can't wait to try out this new probiotic called Phytospore. And one of the most amazing things is that you can get the standard process line of supplements, which you usually need to consult with a veterinarian to get access to. And of course, you can find the best CBD products for your dog from CBD Dog Health. All of these are online in Dr. Ruth Roberts' store. I'll have a link in the show notes for you. And if you use the code ErinTheDogMom, you can save 10% on all of your orders. Here's to good health for all of our dogs. So Kay is actually an employee of Ruby Balaram, who you heard from on episode 69 of the Believe in Dog podcast earlier this year. And in that episode, we heard Ruby's story of how the company Real Dog Box came to be. So over the last eight years that Ruby had been working on the Real Dog Box company, she would get tons of questions from customers about what they should be feeding their dog, how to feed their dog. And she wanted to create a course for her customer service team to like learn everything they needed to know about how to answer all of the customer's questions. And so Kay was hired as a researcher to be a course creator and joined the Feed Real team to put all of this research and knowledge together for Ruby's employees. But they started working on this course and they realized there is so much information here. Like pet parents should have access to this information and even veterinarians should have access to this information. So Kay is going to tell us from her side of the story 
how she went from a vet tech who always wanted to work with animals to spending 32 years being the voice of the animals that were being used for laboratory research. And I really appreciate Kay sharing that part of her story with us. But just a couple years ago, Kay was abruptly let go from her job and was trying to figure out her next chapter. And that's where her path and Ruby's path collided. And Kay discovered this whole passion and has this fire lit inside of her now to help all of us learn how to feed our dogs a species-appropriate diet. And Kay and I are going to use the term kibble a few times, and so I want you to be clear about what we mean by that. So when we use the term kibble, we're referring to any dried pellet form dog food, whether it's low-end or high-end, any of the dog food that's sold in a bag. And why? Even if you are buying the good kibble, at the end of the day, it really is all still sort of the same thing. And Kay will explain to us exactly why that is. And one of the things that I was really struck by in Kay's story is that she doesn't even have her own dog right now. She has dogs in her life and even dogs that live in the same house as her, but she doesn't have a dog right now that's like her dog. And so she does all of this out of just this extreme passion for wanting to share the correct information, for wanting to share the right information, and for wanting all of us to be empowered about how to best care for our dogs. So I can't wait for you to meet Kay Stewart. So we are here today with Kay Stewart. How are you, Kay? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you. We have a lot to dive into. So I always love starting off by asking about your childhood experiences with pets. I did not grow up with any animals. I didn't even know I liked dogs until I was 25. (laughs) And it changed my whole life. So what about you? Did you grow up with, with dogs and with pets? Well, growing up, we did have a couple of dogs, um, little dogs that were my mom's, if you will. They always stuck stuck with mom. And I liked them. I liked all animals. Uh, I was the kind that was playing outside with plastic animals, not, you know, other things when my neighbor friend and I, that's what we did all the time. So I always loved animals, um, but we didn't have a lot. My sister was really, really allergic to cats, so we couldn't have cats, which I really like cats too. So yeah, minimal, but I knew very early on that I wanted to be what I would thought was going to be a veterinarian um, all along. And in fact, in fifth grade, we had to write what we thought we would be doing in our 20s. And my sister actually worked with my fifth grade teacher after I would turn 20 something and she gave her my paper and it said I'd be a veterinarian and I'd have two kids and I mean, so pretty much everything Um, But I'm not a veterinarian. I'm a veterinary technician. And that came about because in high school, I found out about the new career field of veterinary technology and realized that I wanted to be that person, the person that was actually doing the hands-on more than the veterinarian. And there was a lot of, you know, schooling issues and that kind of thing, too. So that's where I got on the path of veterinary technology instead of veterinarian. Um, It's a two-year program versus eight. (laughs) So it made more sense financially for me. So that was always your goal for a career? Yeah. Do something with animals. I always knew it'd be something. Yeah. That's great. So So what did you learn when you were in school about animal nutrition? Do you remember anything that you were taught? Yeah, we were taught. It was Perina that sponsored Purdue at the time when I was down there. Um, I got my veterinary technology degree in 
1982 and Perina was that was they were already active in the vet schools and I remember it distinctly because <laughs> the vet students would try their treats during the hours that they were on call and they were bored and they'd be sitting there trying these dog treats <laughs> and it was disgusting <laughs> um, but that's why I remember it so well and I didn't have my own dog at the time my parents had a couple dogs so I didn't t- partake in the the discounted food. It wasn't free, but it was discounted uh, at that time. But yeah, they were already offering back in the 80s, discounted food to the vet students, free treats. Um, They would bring in for the vet students, not so much the techs, they would bring in um, like pizza and do talks to them and and stuff like that. So that was, that's been going on for a long time, 40 years at least. (laughs) So everything that you would have learned would have been through the lens of Purina. Yes. And I don't think, you know, I was trying to think back to our curriculum. We didn't have an animal nutrition course. Um, We had some, we had an animal science course that had nutrition in it, uh, but it was all like feedlot nutrition. So we learned about, you know, cows, pigs, horses, sheep, and then some dog and cat nutrition in there, but it was all kibble based. Like I honestly never got off the kibble train until I started working for real dog. I just, it just never even occurred to me. It was, I was always so wrapped up in everything else. And I didn't work in clinics. I worked in clinics for only two years after graduating. In 1985, I started working in biomedical research and was in that role for 32 years. And I had my own dog a couple of times, a couple of different dogs during that time. But it was such a different uh, emphasis on my career being in lab animal that the thought of, you know, it just didn't cross my mind to do anything else nutritionally. Um, It irritates me that it didn't cross my mind. I'm like, how could it not have crossed my mind? But I don't know. It's just how it is. And it's, I have to accept that I finally have come around to seeing what I should be feeding. And I am doing that now. And um, it's been amazing how much I've learned in two and a half years. (laughs) So had you ever even heard of raw feeding throughout the years? I had heard of it here and there, but really just didn't pay any attention to it. Um, And it's, you know, it's funny because we did some feed studies with animals uh, for different conditions. And now I'm thinking those studies weren't species appropriate diets. And so I question some of the research that was done because if they're not feeding species appropriate diets to the animals, then how are we getting the results that were, you know, how do we trust those results? So yeah, it, it's really thrown a lot of uh, questions in my mind and paradigm shifts and I'm just constantly learning <laughs> every single day. I'm learning new things and loving it. Well, I love that you're just so open to it you know, to take in the new information. That's the the biggest thing is being open to new ideas. And I that's what frustrates me with the veterinary community that is so close to it. And I get it. I really do understand a lot of it. They're afraid of something that they didn't learn in school. They're afraid of that paradigm shift. But at what point are they, is it, you know, what is it going to take? At what point are they going to finally see what kibble is doing to these animals and how can they keep ignoring it and it's very very frustrating to me you said you actually worked in like lab animal research is that right Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the university level. So I worked for the University of Notre Dame for 32 years, and I was running their animal research facilities. Um, I was the associate director. And so I oversaw all the facilities and the people taking care of the animals. And and then I helped with a lot of the projects, Um, did a lot of digging into research for the researchers and helping them, you know, plan the animal side of things. So I was basically the voice of the animals. Um, And we didn't have dogs. We had two very, very short studies with dogs when they were working with, they were actually working with mosquitoes and looking at the different mosquitoes that carry heartworm. So the dogs weren't really the subject. It was really the mosquitoes and the dogs were cured. And then we were able to adopt them out. And so, yeah, it was dogs weren't dogs and cats weren't part of that equation. So I was really out of the loop for a long time with that. So what kind of animals were there? So there were um, a lot of mice so probably tens of thousands of mice at a yeah, time. Yeah, makes sense. Um, a lot of cancer research was being done with mice. But our other most numerous species was zebrafish. A lot of genetic research is being done with zebrafish. And so we had rooms and rooms and rooms of tanks of zebrafish that were, I mean, the, the setups were very elaborate and they were monitored 24-7. And they were monitored by me 24-7. So I was on call almost all the time for most of that 32 years. We had some rats. We did have, like I said, dogs on a couple occasions and guinea pigs, rabbits, you know, some of the basic animals. Yeah. Is that weird at all to think about? You know, I it is because I didn't realize how out of alignment I was with my true passion until I left. And I left on very negative terms because I just abruptly eliminated my position after 32 years. Um, so it was very hard, but it's the best thing that could have ever happened to me. And I realize now how out of alignment I was, how unhappy I was with the job, but I was in a very stable situation. I was making decent money, you know, it was comfortable in a sense, but it wasn't if I really look at it. And, um, and yes, I, I gained a lot from them, but like I said, in the long run, it was the absolute best thing that could have happened to me. <laughs> and then, then I was able to find what I, my true passion, this dog nutrition path that I'm on. You know, it's interesting. I've actually had a couple women on the podcast before who have been involved in ending the laboratory testing of beagles. It's just mm. interesting. They all kind of came to me through different ways, you know, like mm-hmm. I didn't set out to you know, have like three different people on that, you know, had their story touched by that in some way. But it's been really interesting learning about the new technologies that are on the horizon that could potentially eliminate the need for animal testing. Mm -hmm. But like it has to be approved by, I don't know, the FDA or Congress has to tell the FDA that it's okay to eliminate that step because it actually is currently a requirement, you know, that if a new drug or, you know, pharmaceutical or medical device or, you know, any of these things have to pass these um, tests on animals first. So I'm really hoping that we can get to a a point where technology has eliminated that need. Well, at least, uh, you know, a lot of the need, I think there's always going to be some minimal testing, but I think that a lot of the steps could be eliminated with the new technology. And I think there's a lot of redundancy because of the whole, you know, having to publish and worrying about, you know, how you're going to get grants and all that. It's, it creates this machine that is really redundant. And yeah, I 
I look back and think, I mean, I know I did well in the position because I was the voice of the animals and I was able to really put my foot down and be like, no, we can't keep going with this experiment or that's not going to work with the animals. But having said that, it's still hard. It's still hard to know that I played such a role in it. So glad to be out. <laughs> well, I think it's very courageous of you to even share that. So I thank you for sharing that with us. You're welcome. So, you know, I'm a little bit of a research nerd myself, and I always liked that part like through college, but I didn't get into the medical research world until my current job position. So pretty much for the last 20 years now, I've had some role at some point in the day where I'm doing something with medical research journals, and we deal with a lot of like expert uh, witnesses, like expert medical yeah. doctors, and, you know, on both sides of the litigation. And so, you know, we're digging into things. And one of the things that I'm like most proud of was this PowerPoint presentation that I did in court. And this was probably 10 years ago now, but there's a study type of a study called a meta-analysis. I'm sure you're familiar with this, but it's where they're taking all different studies that have been done on a certain subject over time. And they're kind of trying to put it all together so that you're looking at apples to apples and oranges to oranges. And this one particular study was looking, or this one particular meta-analysis was looking at like 40 different studies. And so it was my job to go and pool all of the underlying studies mm -hmm. and then compare all of the data and all of the math. And we found, I found an unbelievable amount of errors <laughs> where numbers had been transposed and decimal points had been put in the wrong places oh and all this. And so I had this PowerPoint that my boss went through in court with the expert whose name was on this meta-analysis showing like, and then there's this error, and then there's this oh error, and then there's this error, yes. you know, and it just went on and on and on. And I think there was like 17 different errors that we found wow. that all coincidentally went in favor of the point that this author was making, you know, none of the right. mistakes went the other. <laughs> yeah. And so it's really made me cynical and skeptical of a lot of even what we read in, you know, in, in research. Mm -hmm. And have you ever run into any kind of situations like this in any you know, of your positions right. throughout your career where you're like, what is going on here? And how can we trust this and then like you turn on the news right and they're like you know milk you know does yeah. a body good according <laughs> right. to the american milk council you know <laughs> exactly and I, I have trouble trusting things yeah i i agree and being in science for so long what i know is that stats can be skewed you can get a stat to say anything and when a researcher starts a study, they are supposed to indicate what statistical analysis they're going to use. And if you look at that versus their outcome in their paper, very few times is that really the stats they used because I don't think it worked very well. So then they'll come up with a different statistical analysis and you can tweak until you find the right stats to get what you want out of that data. And I'm not saying that most of them do it, but I know it happens. And I think that's what worries me the most. And so a lot of the research, you know, I kind of take with a grain of salt. I like the meta studies usually because they'll pull in all those different studies, but you do have to go back if you're questioning something and look at the original studies. 
But I think that's where we're seeing some good studies with the dog nutrition because they're pulling these studies from different countries and pulling them all together. And we're seeing, we're able to compare what dog owners are doing in different areas. And these reviews or meta studies are, are really helping us pull all that data together. But again, yeah, you have to really mine that data, look at it and determine if it's really saying what that final conclusion is saying. And sometimes you'll never know because you don't know how they, what statistical analysis they did or what they did prior. And then they went to this type of analysis. Um, So yeah, I think you have to be cautious when you just assume that all peer reviewed journals are right. I tend to look for three or four different sources and compare the different outcomes if, if possible. And so when I'm looking at all of the um, research that we do for the courses, and we can talk about that in a minute, but there are so many projects for human nutrition that use dogs. Those are the studies that are showing us what is going on with dog nutrition, because if, it can't, if they did a study in dogs, it may not have been for dogs, but it was in dogs for people. So you can really extrapolate a, a lot of data that way. And that's where I found a lot of my information. Oh, interesting. So tell us how it is that you came to leave Notre Dame after 32 years and now come to work for Real Dog Box and Feed Real Institute. So like I said, my position was abruptly ended and um, I had an 18-month severance package, so I did nothing during the 18 months. I was like, <laughs> I, need for you. <laughs> I need to regroup, figure out my life. And I really started in on a, a self-help journey and, and just figuring out where my life needed to go and all directions, career, personal, everything. And in the meantime, I needed to find something to make money. And I was actually working for human medicine for 19, 20, and 21, and 22. Oh, terrible time to be. <laughs> I, I bet you were busy. <laughs> urgent care. Yeah. And so while I was working at urgent care, it was three days a week because it was 12 hour shifts. And so I was like, I'm bored out of my mind. I'm just this is ridiculous. And so I started looking into dog stuff and didn't really want to work in a clinic. I just didn't know what I wanted. And I put in remote dog in Indeed and this job came up for a real dog box. I'm like, can this really be true? Like they need somebody <laughs> to write and research for them, like two of my favorite things and dogs. <laughs> um, so I started out part-time in 2021 and worked part-time for them and full-time for the other job until the following summer. And then I flipped it and started working full-time for Real Dog and part-time for the uh, urgent care. And the only reason I stuck with urgent care that long is because I had to have shoulder surgery and I needed to have the insurance and get through all my <laughs> rehab and all of that. So I was finally able to leave urgent care and just do the, the Feed Real Institute. And that has been, uh, it, it, yeah, it's just been so mind-blowing how much I've learned and how quickly I've had to learn it. Um, I feel like an imposter sometimes because some people have been in this for 20 years and they're asking me questions and I'm like, you're the one doing this for 20 years. I've been doing it for two. But luckily, I'm a very fast learner and a, and a strong book learner. Doing the course, you know, creating the, that course, of course, I learned so much doing that. And constantly updating, constantly. I'm, I'm in the process of updating all of the articles on Feed Real website. 
and most of which I did not write. So I'm updating all of those and relearning all of that. So yeah, it's just, that's all I do all the time is learn, <laughs> learn, write, research. So when you first, you know, get the job and start working there and you're like, what? Like, were you just like, what are they doing? <laughs> I mean, how did this is yeah, your mind? Exactly. So when Ruby and I talked the first time, I'm like, okay, I don't know anything about this. And ironically, this is such a weird part of the, the journey is the Thursday before I was supposed to start my job on Monday, I fell and broke three bones in my left hand. Oh my God. And so I, I talked to Ruby and I'm like, I understand if you can't wait for me, but there's no way I'm going to be able to work for, you know, trying to type and everything. Um, I was a mess. And she's like, no, that's fine. In the meantime, I took two courses through Dog Naturally University. Uh, I took the regular dog nutrition course and I took the raw course. And so I think in, in that month's time. And so I really think that that was meant to happen because it really set me up to be like, okay, now I feel like I know what I'm really doing in this job. And I can really, I really kickstarted what I, what I was doing. So I started a month later than I thought I would, but I was really well prepared at that point. And I just, they just started assigning me articles and I just dove right in. So, and then we realized that we wanted to create a course and it started out that we wanted to create a course for the customer service team, the member services team. And we realized this is good, too good of information to just share internally. So then we started creating this, this dog parent course. And the more Ruby and I got involved in the project, I'm like, we need to market this for the veterinary profession. But if we do that, we have to, break it into two courses because we needed a lot more scientific for the veterinary profession. We need to take out references to any blogs or any, you know, we had to really move it up professionally. Had to take out any, any references to real dog box, you know, we couldn't be biased about products. So that's when we, we split it and made two courses. So they marry each other but the veterinary one is a lot more intense and more academic. And that's why we were able to get it recertified. That process was a, a lot harder than I ever thought it was going to be. So race certified race is the registry for accepted continuing education credits for veterinary professionals. And you had to apply to have your course certified or any program certified. And because I am not a board certified nutritionist, I had to have somebody, two people say that I was a strong enough candidate to present this material that I knew enough going in. And so they're like, you need to have board certified nutritionists read this and say that it's good. Well, there's not very many board certified nutritionists and they're all either tied to a dog food company or a university that's sponsored by a dog food company. So, you know, it's really funny that you say that. I'll just interject <laughs> real quick. Uh, over on the Alternative Dog Moms podcast that I do with Kimberly, right. we actually looked into this. And I think we found that there was about 20 board-certified veterinary nutritionists that do any kind of patient consults. But when I looked and got into it further, 
you know, some of them will only consult with you if you're already like going to their particular practice. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them will only do like cardiology type patients or oncology type patients. We only were able to identify, I think it was less than 10 in the whole United States who you could just contact through the website or, you know, remotely and not have a pre-existing relationship with. And so anyway, it is like, it always sounds like this great idea to work with a board certified veterinary nutritionist, but they're very few and far between. They are. And they're, like I said, so many of them are tied. Even those 10 are probably linked somehow to a vet school or uh, one of the, the um, dog food companies. And it may be one like a farmer's dog or, you know, something but it's still a conflict of interest for them to promote our product. And so I reached out to every single one in the, in the world. And I think there were 96 of them, maybe 30 of them got back to me and said, no, um, a couple of them in very not nice terms. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, let's think about this. So I went back to the race people and they said, it doesn't have to be a veterinary nutritionist. It just has to be somebody with an advanced degree in animal nutrition. So then I started delving in on the net looking for PhDs in animal nutrition. And I did find two that work in the zoo arena and they're doing their diets for the zoos and they agreed to do. Um, the, they read through it. They agreed that I presented it well and, and uh, was qualified to teach the course. Interestingly, neither of them felt like raw was appropriate for pet dogs, but they felt like I had presented it well and that they agreed that I could teach it. And it just really blew me away. I'm like, you're feeding species appropriate diets to zoo animals. Why wouldn't you agree to pet animal? Right. And I'll never understand. Both of them were that way. Yeah. It was very, very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it took nine months before I finally got the approval. Wow. And, um, and then the state of New York has a different governing body as far as approval for their CEs. So then we had to go after that, um, which was easy. It just had to put it on this like, I don't know, a huge stack of papers. I think there were 10 documents we had to send along with a check, of course, and that got approved. (laughs) And then recently, we've been approved with the Professional Dog Trainers Council for professional dog trainers that need continued education. So dog trainers and behaviorists both can get CEs from taking the course. So we've been very pleased to be able to promote it to help professionals. And that's what we're trying to do. And we are having some veterinarians come on board with taking the course and then they have to take the two-hour workshop uh, for at the end of the course. You have to take a two-hour workshop to show that you know what you're doing with creating the meals. And so that's been great is to interact with them and talk to them. And, you know, they're saying that they're talking to their colleagues and they're talking to their clients. And so one by one, we're going to get them. <laughs> Well, I hope that you have like appropriately celebrated and, you know, had a nice big drink and, oh, yeah. <laughs> and enjoyed this because that's really impressive. We are the only fresh feeding canine nutrition course out there that is race certified. 
There are a couple of other new canine nutrition courses that are race certified, but nothing that talks about fresh food. It's all kibble based. Yeah, that's another thing that Kimberly and I did over on the Alternative Dog Moms. When you guys got approved, we went on and looked at the race website for continuing education classes and looked at what other nutrition classes were available. And almost all of them are like sponsored by Hills Pet Nutrition. And I was like, oh, look at that, you know, Hills, Perina, even the ones that it's... um, North American Veterinary Community, I think is the acronym NAVC. They, if you drill way down, are sponsored by Hills. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, even though the course doesn't have a Hills name on it, Hills is one of the big sponsors of that whole community. So they're in there. And they had, and I, I took that course and I thought, oh, it actually has a section on raw feeding. And it was basically, don't do it. <laughs> It talked about all the negatives of raw feeding. I was like, oh, well, that's not what I want. <laughs> so, yeah, we did. We celebrated big because that's the, that we are the only one out there that is really, you know, like the ones out of Dog Naturally, they're, they're great courses, but they're not race certified. So it was a, a big step for us to take. To Absolutely. Get that race certified. Absolutely. So something I wanted to talk to you about was about the history of kibble and like where did this even come from because it's only been like over the past hundred ish years I think that this has really been like what did dogs eat before that and what is kibble can you talk to us a little bit about that absolutely so you know it started out from what I have read as the biscuits that were coming off of the ships that men were eating when they were on ships as they're, they were like crackers or biscuits, they were tossing them out to the dogs at the end of the run or, you know, when, when they were done getting off the ships and they're like, Sprat, I think was his name was like, yeah. Wait a minute, these dogs are eating these, you know, let's, let's start making these for dogs. And, you know, it evolved, there was a lot of horse meat after World War One, where there was excess, an excess of horses that they used in the war. And they said that they used a lot of horse meat um, for the dog food. Oh dear. But it was really in, I think like the fifties that it just really became popular and they started marketing it because they saw that it was easy and they saw the increase of dogs going, you know, becoming household members and they Perina and, and Mars and, you know, all of the big companies realized that there was a market for this and just started making this, this kibble and kibble is basically a lot of animal byproducts that are rendered down in very high heat. Um, and when I'm saying rendered, they're like boiled down to the point where there's really just a layer of sludge at the bottom and they, they pull off the fat, which they use for candles and soaps and, you know, other things that they use animal fats for. And then they use that as, as the base of kibble. And then they, add some stuff to it. The bad thing about kibble is it's overprocessed. It's junk food going in. You know, I keep hearing, I was just listening to Tom Lonsdale's book, his most recent one. And it's basically, you know, if you would go to McDonald's every day, but not even eat McDonald's, you would grind it up, heat it, extrude it into little nuggets and then eat it, (laughs) you know, how much even worse it would be. And so it has just gotten to the point where it is so adulterated. It's so 
far from real food that our dogs just can't, they can't even process it. Their bodies are trying so hard to process it. And people say, oh, dogs can eat carbs. They have this gene mutation that allows that. Yes, they can have carbs, but 50, 60% carbs, their body just works overtime to process all of that. And that's why we're getting so many illnesses. Their body can't do both. They can't fight illness and be healthy while trying to process all of this horrible food. And so seeing that and, and reading about it and really realizing it, it just really hit me with a couple of dogs that I had, what I saw. Um, I had one dog back in the 80s, and this is before the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, they call it, before it was really characterized. But I had a dog that basically had all the signs. Like she would, she was ravenous and she would just, she wasn't digesting. She, the food was just going straight through her. And we even did a, I was working at a clinic at the time and the vet even did where he went in and took a sample, a biopsy of her small intestine and sent it to Purdue. They didn't know what was going on. There was no cancer. There was no, it was just, they said her, basically her intestinal wall was dead. All the villi had just died and we didn't know why, but they didn't culture it for bacteria. And, you know, that was one of the things as I'm researching, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what she died from. This is, this is what was going on with my dog. Wow. And so, yeah, there were some big aha moments for me. And that was one that really hit me. So just learning about gut health and, and what we need to do to get our dogs healthy in their gut so that the rest of their body can be healthy is one of my big passions is just we need to feed them species appropriate food so they can survive and thrive. Yes, they can survive on kibble, but they can't thrive on it. Their body is working so hard just to process that food. So what about the people that are like, but I buy the good dog food? <laughs> you know, I buy like the $80 bags of yeah. kibble, you know, that's not kibble. Like kibble's like that, you know, the cheap stuff. Like I buy the good kibble. <laughs> good stuff. Yeah. Or they'll ask online, you know, can you recommend a good kibble? No, those are oxymorons. <laughs> There's no good kibble because the process is the same. So you can start out with better ingredients. And, and if you look at that bag and think, yeah, these things are looking better than maybe the, the more generic brand but they're still going through that same ultra heat processing and extruding processes. And during those times, they're creating these um, different components that are carcinogens. They've proven to be carcinogen. Ages are one, A-G-E-S, mm -hmm. um, H-C-A's. These are all things that as you are heating food to that extreme, they're creating these, these side compounds that are considered carcinogenic to humans. Now, they have to be carcinogenic to dogs, too. Are there studies on that? No, because there's nobody that's going to fund those studies because they don't want to know that. So, And it just causes all this inflammation. So, yes, you can start with better ingredients, but when you're putting them through that same process, by the time it gets to the bag, they're not better ingredients. They still have all of these reactions that have occurred. They still have all these synthetic vitamins and minerals, and it's still kibble. Now, there are some better commercial foods out there now that are raw and that are working really hard not to use synthetics and to use a lot better, um, you know, a lot less processing. And those, yes, they're a lot better. 
So, but it's not kibble. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I, I think back sometimes, right. And I mean, I guess, you know, you, I'm sure you used to feed your dogs kibble, like, you know, like I'm like embarrassed sometimes, but it's like, I, I didn't know. And I think, you know, we adopted our first dog in 2004 and I think 2008 was when I very first ever heard of raw feeding. And I, you know, I was volunteering with this great group of women and they were all talking about this and I'm kind of like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> I felt like such an idiot, you know, like, cause they're all like, oh yeah, I buy this. And they, and so I like, you know, I don't know if you know me, but me, I go home and I'm like Googling, like, what is this, you know? <laughs> and, and I'm like, this is like blowing my mind, you know? And I'll be honest to this day, it still intimidates me to try to create my own diet. So I have always bought like the commercial brands of raw food. Okay. Um, so it took, when I first heard about raw feeding was 2008. I think it took till 2013 for us to be able to like afford <laughs> to buy the food <laughs> that I wanted to buy. And I right. remember it very clearly because we had paid off my husband's Jeep in like <laughs> August and it was in like September when I bought the first batch of yeah. it. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, it's been 10, 10 years now. And anyway, it's just that I want everybody to know that it's like, it's a journey. Uh, I spent my whole life watching TV, seeing these commercials where the dog is galloping through the field and there's like the ribeye steak and the juicy chicken breast on <laughs> the bag. And I just thought, you know, it was no big thing for us to buy, you know, our dog food right across from the laundry detergent aisle. And, you know, that was just what you did. Well, and you can imagine how I feel like I was in the veterinary community all those years and I, just it just never occurred to me that you know until I started with real dog and yeah I smacked my head a lot of times thinking how did it take me so long to make this transition and if I wasn't working in the company I am I would never have gotten this far so fast Um, but you know I had all that's all I do is is read about it and learn about it and I'm kind of jealous about that by the way (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Like I'm paid to do this. So I get to learn it all. And I took over the workshops. So I'm teaching people how to do this, making their own meals and doing it very quickly and efficiently and why we do it and how we do it. And every time I do those workshops, we do two a month. I learn more from people and so many of them. I've been doing it for 10, 20 years, you know, and I'm teaching them. But we learn from each other. They're great opportunities. And it takes the intimidation factor out. And I think that's the biggest thing with people is don't be afraid to do this. Um, You know, if you've raised children and they are adults and they've gone off and you fed them, did you feed them out of a, you know, a spreadsheet? Did you worry every day what you were giving them? You know, you went to the store, you bought things, you made their meals. I don't know why they have gotten dog owners so scared to feed their dogs. What is so different that in feeding dogs than it is humans? There's no reason to be so afraid. If you get basics in there and the, the feed real calculator, it makes it so easy. And I don't know. I mean, I put it on all these websites or all these um, Facebook groups as many as I can to get it out there because it makes it so simple. And it tells you exactly what to do and how much to do. And we have all kinds of information on there. We add to it constantly when 
you know, especially in my workshops, people will say, could, I wish the calculator would do this. Oh, well, we can do that and we'll <laughs> add to it. So to use real dog products, we actually showed how much less you have to use of that because all the moisture has been taken out. So you multiply everything by 0.2. Well, but we did that on the calculator for you. We have it on there. If you're going to use real dog products, this is how much you put in the bowl. Um, so we've made it so easy. And the big thing is, is it's balance over time. You do not have to have every meal balanced perfectly, not even every day perfectly or every week, you know, it's over time. And if you just keep adding variety to their bowl, you don't want to feed them the same meal day after day after day. And that's what worries me with people that are buying recipes from these animal nutritionists. They will buy one recipe and that dog will get that recipe for the rest of their life. And that's it's better than kibble, but that's one of the problems is that you're constantly feeding the same thing. You need variety just like we do in our diet. So it, don't be afraid. You're not going to hurt your dog. I was just listening to a podcast um, today and it was about vitamin A. And they were saying that, you know, twice a year you can get a huge dose of vitamin A and that will be enough for your body to have because it's stored in the liver and in the fat. I mean, we, you have to really, really screw up to screw up your dog. Um, <laughs> if you, if you follow some basic guidelines and that's the, the feed reel calculator is so basic and so easy. Look on that. Enjoy it. I love going out and finding different stuff for Kona. So I have a 30 pound golden doodle that I feed. She is not mine, but she <laughs> is in the household where I live right now. I'm living with my daughter and her family and they let me transition her and they let me transition the two cats on the property. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. And that's been interesting. Cats are, that's a whole different animal <laughs> when it comes to this. Literally. People ask, yeah, people ask me, so what about cats? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> well, this is what I did. <laughs> and I tell you, they inexplicably went off feed completely. Uh, about a week and a half ago, like would not eat anything. And in the meantime, my daughter that normally feeds them left on vacation. I came back from vacation and she's like, by the way, mom, the cats aren't eating. I need you to take them over. You know, I'm like, oh, <laughs> so I went out and bought canned food, um, knowing how bad it is, but I had to get food and especially the female because she has some metabolic issues. And I gave them canned food and they went right for it. Why? Oh, that's like crack. You know, that's like candy. Yeah. that has all yeah. that sugar and all those other things in it. So they got that for two days. And then I started mixing it back with the grind that I give them. And then within four days, they're back to their normal food. Um, so they, yeah, cats can be tricky. <laughs> they can be tricky. But transitioning and and making Kona's meals, I've had a ball with it. Like I go and find like, oh my gosh, the place that's goat lung today. I'm going <laughs> to buy that for her or, you know, all different weird stuff. We have a co-op that's it's about an hour drive, um, but they have stuff that we can do for both the cat and the dog. And so I go up every like five to six weeks and we just load up the freezer with what we want. And, and they have exotic protein. Sometimes they'll have ostrich. Sometimes they'll have, you know, bison, um, like I said, they'll have goat, lamb, all different stuff that I can get for her so I can rotate those proteins for her. And uh, the cats, we can't do that too much. They're so picky that we found <laughs> something they'll eat. And then I just add some extra uh, raw meat to it and they, they'll get their, their extra proteins that way. 
I'm trying to get them to eat raw meaty bones. Hasn't worked yet, but <laughs> we keep trying. <laughs> so that has been an interesting experiment uh, over these last few months. You know, Kimberly and I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Tom Lonsdale. You had mentioned mm -hmm. you've been, you know, yep. listening to reading his book. And that was something that I was like, you know what, I need to do more of that. Yeah. And so Nino loves turkey necks. He loves duck necks. He thinks chicken backs are really weird. <laughs> <laughs> And he like, he'll like pick it up with like his lip. And then he's kind of like, oh, it's touched me. It's slimy. And oh, yeah, funny. the chicken is like very hit and miss. And then the beef ribs, he's kind of been like, okay, you want me to, okay, I'll chew on it. Like, can we, are, are we done that? Like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, it's just been an interesting experiment uh, with, with all this. Yeah, I had to, with Kona, I had to lightly lightly cook the everything when I first started with her um, barely like barely sear it but just enough to enhance that flavor and the chicken feet I had to boil a little bit for her to eat them now I I pull them out of the freezer and she's wanting them like she'll eat everything she does not like the turkey necks as much um, she did she has taken them the last couple of times. That's one thing from real dog box that she doesn't like is their turkey necks. So it's really funny how dogs have these weird, you don't think of them having weird preferences, but they yeah. do. And so when I get that in my box, I give it to my sister's dog. She just doesn't like them. She's like, no, nope, don't want that. Or <laughs> she'll take it out back. And we have 20 chickens in the backyard and chickens eat everything. Anything. <laughs> yes. And so she'll leave it back. Chickens there aren't vegetarians. <laughs> uh, chickens will eat everything. Like we throw the chicken bones after we've cooked a chicken and pulled all the meat off. We toss the chicken bones out there and they take the rest of it off. <laughs> oh, wow. They eat everything. <laughs> Our household between composting and chickens, nothing goes to waste. <laughs> so, yeah, she, she just doesn't like those turkey or turkey necks. I don't know why. Um it took a while for her to like the whole heads of things that they would send, but now she does. So you just have to, you're feeding the dog in front of you, right? Your dog is going to like things that mine isn't. My dog does not eat vegetables. I know other dogs that will eat vegetables. Kona will not. So for fiber, she gets fur. Little rabbit feet are perfect size for her every day to get one of those little rabbit feet. It's enough fur. Um, right before the podcast, I gave her a cow ear so she wouldn't <laughs> bug me. <laughs> talking to you. Uh, and she loves the cow ears. So it just depends on the dog. And that's, I think, another big key thing with people is don't worry about that Instagram bowl that you see, <laughs> those really pretty little bowls. My bowls never look like that. I have that. like 27 different ingredients and, and yeah. like <laughs> cereal like, killer was here. There's like an so, eyeball. Yeah, exactly. and, yeah. <laughs> I'm a My squeamish raw six. feeder. I will admit it. The body, <laughs> like the, the identifiable body parts, like kind of freak me out. <laughs> uh, well, I don't like the organ meats. I don't like handling them. Um, and so with real dog box, we have that 50, 50 grind that has 50% yeah. liver and 50% other organ. Ruby always teases me in the workshop. She's like, you're cheating. I said, no, I'm showing them the right way to do it. <laughs> it's so easy. The bad thing is, is we have people from all over the world do the workshops and we don't ship outside of US and Canada. And they're like, how can I get that? <laughs> um, so there, yeah, there's a lot of ways to get around that. But I, again, it, it, 
I really have found those tips to be really nice because that's, you know, a teaspoon of that goes in her meal every day. That's so easy. I'm not dealing with, with organs. Plus we have a very limited space in our freezer with four adults and two children in the household and dog and cats. And <laughs> so um, we still need to get an upright freezer. We just haven't done that. But you find your, you find what works for you. You find what works for your dog and you evolve with it. And it, like you said, it's a journey, like it's intimidating at first, but the way I was thrown in and so quickly took over the workshops, it has been a lot easier for me than other people. But like I said, just don't be afraid. And if you're, you're listening to this and you want to figure it out a lot quicker, join one of our workshops. We do them virtually twice a month. Um, one's on a Thursday night and one is on a Saturday morning. We're varying some times up because like I said, we have people from all over the world taking them. Like I had a woman that was, um, I'm trying to think where she was from, somewhere in Europe. And it was one in the morning and she was in our workshop. And oh, I'm like, wow. okay, that's dedication. She's that's like, hardcore. Yeah. For, yeah. <laughs> she's like, I went up and slept for a while and I came back for the, I said, oh my gosh. Um so yeah, it is hardcore. And and we've had people, we had somebody from Bulgaria the other day and um, Sweet, or Switzerland, you know, it's just, it's really cool to, to meet all these people. And so the workshops are great if you want to join one and, or of course the courses will teach you a lot too. But if you just want to get a jump start, the workshops are great. Well, I'll make sure we have a link in the show notes to that. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to make sure we dive into is you know, what most veterinarians, the two big objections that they have to why feeding raw is a bad idea. And the ones that I have always heard, number one is the bacteria that, you know, there's salmonella or things like that. And uh, my own personal just aside to, to that is that, you know, I had breast cancer um, about five years ago and I went through chemo. And so you're technically like, immunocompromised uh, while you're going through chemo. I still fed my dogs raw the entire time that I was going through chemo. And I great testimonial right there. Didn't do anything different. Like, you know, I, I don't usually go around touching raw meat with my bare hands. So I didn't (laughs) do that, you know? So I I just, you know, I'm always like, look, I, I survived. (laughs) I had literally no problems. That was just my, my little aside about the bacteria thing. And then the other uh, objection that you often hear is that, you know, People don't know how to do it right. So what do you want to, want us to know about these arguments that you hear a lot? So, you know, we go to these vet conferences and are, are um, presenting our course to the veterinarians. And we're talking about those specific issues with them. Um, the one question I always ask them is, do you have clients asking about raw feeding? And they'll say yes. And so then we'll say, well, then what are you telling them? <laughs> um, and most of them say Yeah, the imbalances and the raw. Those are the two big ones, like you said. Now, the issue with the raw, there's so many good studies. um, And one came out of um, Sweden that they they surveyed 16,500 and some households. Of those, three households had bacterial infections that they linked to feeding their animal raw. Three out of 16,500 and some. And they went through and they said they couldn't even substantiate that that really was it. It was suspected. So that's a great one to argue against. Now, you're going to see some, you can find articles that argue for that same thing. But 
if you really look at the stats, this is where the stats play in. That's 99.96% is safe. Yeah. Um, and it's common sense. Like you said, you don't go touching all the, the raw meat and then touch everything out. No, you wash everything out. Yeah, I don't look like the counter when we make raw chicken. (laughs) And, you know, they they say that the biggest thing is immunocompromised people and children. Well, I have the two grandchildren here. They love helping me prep the meals. And the last thing we do is wash everything up. And they know if you touch raw meat, you wash your hands. That's And they're so used to that. I mean, they automatically do it. So I'm teaching them good hygiene as we go through teaching them the right way to feed dogs, which is so exciting to me. And they, it's just common sense. We clean everything up and we give tips. You know, if you, if you are squeamish about it, wear gloves, you know, that's, that's what I funny. do. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people do. I personally don't cause it doesn't bother me, but a lot of people do. Um, and a lot of people will have separate like cutting boards and, you know, materials to use for their dog meals versus human meals. That's fine. To me, if you're cutting raw meat for yourself versus for your dog, I don't know what difference it makes. But if that's what makes you more comfortable. And then I always make like 14 days worth of meals and then freeze them down and just take a few out at a time. Mm -hmm. So I'm only food, food prepping, you know, every 10 to 14 days. And so it's not a constant thing that you're doing. We wash the bowls every day. Um, you know, it's just common sense. People are like, well, there's going to be salmonella in the feces. I guarantee you there's salmonella in most everybody's, all, you know, all the dog's feces. Um, I don't think you're going out there and holding it with your bare hands and picking it up. Yeah, never um, been a problem. So again, no. So you just use common sense, you know. Um, so that's what I have to say about raw. You use common sense. You use, you know, sanitation protocols. We've all learned so many in many ways to wash our hands. So that to me is a, a moot issue. Um, the other thing that amazes me though, is in the human food chain in the United States, up to 20% of the chicken can be infected with salmonella in the grocery store. That's if you read the USDA guidelines, that's right in there because they assume that you're going to cook it. Well, you're still bringing that into your home. So common sense people. <laughs> and you know the other thing too right like if you follow Susan Thixton and the truth about pet food you know she shows that the like 98% of the salmonella that shows up in in pet food is in kibble kibble mm-hmm. yeah and that's that was what was really interesting is they say it's 8,000 times more likely to get salmonella from kibble than you are from creating raw food for your dog um, and so yeah, all those kibble recalls that have been from salmonella or E. coli, they get hushed up really quickly. <laughs> um, so yes, that's a big point too. And then those people with the kibble aren't washing the bowls all the time. They leave that scoop in with the kibble for the entire bag. They may not even be washing the container between bags. You know, it's, they're, they're not doing that. Oh yeah, I guarantee you. I never yeah. washed the yeah. scoop. <laughs> no, no. You just left it in there and you scooped yeah. it out. So, yeah, I, I don't think that that's an issue at all. And then uh, the imbalance one, which was talked about a little bit before, you feed the right components. Um, you learn enough to learn that you feed the right components. Yes, throwing chicken and rice in a bowl is not feeding your dog. I agree 100% with the vets there. Chicken and a vegetable is not feeding your dog. You need to get those key and 
key components in there, the key ingredients. And for um, Real Dog, the six things that we advocate for are raw meaty bones first. Once you've decided what raw meaty bone you're going to use or you have on hand, then you base the diet on that. And then you on, on how much else you need of the muscle meat. So let me back up. So we start with saying how much your dog at its weight, age, and activity level needs on a daily basis. And then you pick the bone and depending on how much bone is in that cut, we base the rest of the meal on that. Okay. Okay. So with Kona, she's 30 pounds. So she gets 9.6 ounces of food a day. And if I have a chicken foot for her bone, that's 60% bone. And then that calculator will tell me everything else then how much raw, how much of that bone I need and how much muscle meat I need. The other components are seafood, which is always 10% of her meal. So it's always going to be consistent right around an ounce. And then 5% liver, 5% other secreting organ, and 5% fur. So those four things stay consistent. It's just the raw meaty bone and the muscle meat that changes according to what bone you have available. And the calculator does it all for you. Um, and it doesn't have to be perfect. There's days that the chicken foot will be a little more bigger. And so she'll get a little more bone today, but then tomorrow she'll get not quite as much, but she always gets 9.6 ounces of food, right around 10 ounces of food on a daily basis. And that's where I'm saying balance over time. It doesn't matter if it's exact, but you're giving the six components and you're making it as close, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a good job adding variety, balancing it out over time. And if you get all those different nutrients in her, you're going to be hitting all those nutrients that she needs. You're going to be hitting all the vitamins and minerals that they're so afraid you're going to imbalance. If you're doing it by raw meaty bones, you're giving it to them by nature, by how they're supposed to get them. So I think worrying about imbalances is a way for us to be scared. And like I've said several times now, don't be scared to do this. It's just like feeding yourself or your kids. It's not rocket science. <laughs> <laughs> has learning any of this changed like how you feed yourself at all? It really has. It makes me think um, I'm not quite where I want to be um, food wise, especially I never in, am. <laughs> in the situation that I'm in with kids and, you know, I just got so much going on. I don't have my own place. Um, but I am a lot more conscientious about what I'm eating. And, and I, th I think about it. I'm like, wait a minute, am I getting enough, you know, varying enough of my proteins? Because I tend to eat the same proteins a lot. Yeah, me and I'll too. Myself, yeah, I'll make myself think, no, think outside the box, you know, let's get some pork this time. I love pork, but it's not always great for me. Um, or get turkey instead of chicken or, you know, just kind of shift things up. Um, my daughter's great about cutting up liver into very small pieces and, and doing it with ground beef. The kids don't know they're getting liver. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And they've, they've gotten it that way their entire life, but just adding those nutrients. So there's a lot of ways you can get those nutrients in yourself. And yes, it, it has made me think about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm definitely never really where I want to be, but right. it's a journey. It's an evolving <laughs> journey. Yeah. It, it is a journey, but yes, it does make you think like, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't have this. <laughs> 
but I give it to my dog. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, when thinking about things like uh, carbs and sugars and what, you know, how many of the foods that we're eating basically just turn into sugar, you know, right. that's something, again, having gone through the cancer journey and all these things, it's right. really affected, you know, how I, you know, feed take care of myself. And I just have to always give a shout out to my husband who does 99.9% of the cooking. Oh, nice. <laughs> and he's very great. much on board with, you know, with everything that we've been doing. And, and, and we've had like our own, you know, it's like our, our own wellness journey has been very mm-hmm. intertwined with our dogs. And like, as we learn and do better for one, we try to learn and do better for the other. And so I think that's where we are. Another area that we're targeting is is people that are really on health kicks. Um, I, I was on a podcast called the carnivore diet oh. and this were for people that are, re, you know, eating this carnivore diet and are yeah. like, well, duh, my dog needs this, you know? And so he had me on and we talked about the course and how people could learn how to That's amazing. Um, feed their dogs. Like, yeah, all of a sudden the light bulb goes on, like I'm eating all this healthy stuff and then I'm throwing this stuff in my dog's bowl. You know, they're, they're, they're that is being linked up. Or the opposite, people are starting to feed their dogs better and they're like, wait, wait a minute, <laughs> what am I eating? So I, I think it's a great way for, it's another way to bond basically with your animal. Yeah, there used to be like a hashtag that was really popular, like my dog eats better than I do. And uh-huh. I'm always like, come on, we should both be up leveling ourselves. Here, right. you know? <laughs> but I think it's funny that, you know, when we first, we think, okay, I'm going to take it for the dog. Okay, and then I'll do it for me. Um, and some people will buy higher quality meats and stuff for their dog than they eat themselves because they feel like the dog's life is shortened. They're detoxifying and organs are so much smaller, so they have to work so much harder. So it makes sense to give your dog the better cuts, but <laughs> it's just like, I can't do that. I, I get as good of quality for myself as I do for the dog. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do try to get the best we can for the dog too you know, all organically raised, pasture raised meats for her. Yeah. And, and like you're saying with the eggs, like, you know, whenever we see vegetarian fed hens in the grocery store, you should (laughs) put those down and get the pasture raised because chickens aren't actually vegetarians. (laughs) No, they are not. They eat, I mean, because ours are, we let them out during the day. And so they free range on everything, like every bug, every every scrap we put out yeah, they're, just the back door. they're just like <laughs> yeah they eat everything um so no they are not they are not vegetarians they are definitely scavengers yeah 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 that's something that always bugs me because i see it in the grocery store all the time and i'm always like no. yeah like no 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 <laughs> well if you are feeding them as vegetarians yeah they're not getting what they need they they're not getting enough protein so you've alluded to us about how you guys have been taking feed real and going to these veterinary conferences like what kind of response and reaction like are are people receptive at all are they combative like i'm 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 just so curious yeah it's a mixed bag so our first conference was last year's ahvma which is the american holistic veterinary medical association And so they're all on the same mindset that we are, that dogs, we need to level up, we need to do holistic treatments, and nutrition is big for them. And so we had very, very good reception there. And that's why we did, I mean, we wanted to get our feet wet that way. And then we went to a conventional uh, conference for the first time. And, you know, we just keep honing our, our message to what we've learned at each one of these conferences, because 
we have had some combative people. Um, at the AVMA conference in July, I had a vet. I said, so are your, you know, clients asking about raw? And he said, yeah, I tell them not to do it. You know, he was just so, and I said, really, does that work? And he just looked at me and I said, do you think that they're going home and saying, okay, the vet told me not to do it. I'm not going to do it. And he just kept staring at me. And I said, so now they're doing it without your advice and without your expertise. And they're not going to tell you because you've shamed them. And he just kept staring at me and he finally walked away. <laughs> so <laughs> if I planted those seeds, you know, I figure at least I planted a seed in his head to be a, maybe next time he'll say, let's talk about it to the client. I don't know. Um, we've had some that are already starting to work on raw feeding. Some of them have said, I feed my dog raw, but I'm not ready to tell my clients about it. And so they were really intrigued with the course. And then we've had others that took the information and I don't know if they'll do anything with it. Most of them will have a conversation. And, you know, especially when we're saying, you know, your clients are asking about it. So doesn't that tell you that they are experimenting with it, but they're doing it wrong. I mean, we had this one lady, she kept saying, I don't trust them to do it right. And I finally said, I said, that's really sad that you don't have rapport with your clients to have that honest conversation that you can trust them. And she walked away. <laughs> It's really when they get confronted with facing their um, inadequacies, then they're going to walk away. But I would say 75% of them have been receptive and will at least talk to us, whether they follow through, you know, is really hard to measure. We are getting some that are signing up for the course and um, for every veterinarian and veterinary technician that sign up, I'm so excited because I think that's going to, that's the triple trickle down, you know, this is the, you know, the ripple in the water that we're creating. And so, yeah, we're just hoping that they, they go back and take the message with them. So we have in three weeks, we have the AHVMA again. And so we're really excited, excited for that group of people again, because like I said, they are already are indoctrinated into let's do better for our dogs. Some of them aren't doing nutrition consults yet. Um, they're doing a lot of other modalities like acupuncture and that kind of thing, but they are definitely pro raw feeding. So, and one of the things we've done is we've changed our message a little bit to go from raw to fresh and whole feeding. And so it kind of takes that raw feeding out, you know, that worry about raw food and just remind them that it's not just raw that we're advocating for. It's fresh whole food. Yeah. So we're trying to hone that message, you know, like let's, let's talk to them about fresh whole food, real food, instead of just using the word raw. And I think that message is a little easier to, to grab onto. I mean, I just always think for people, right? It's like our doctors are begging us to please eat some fresh food, to please stop eating processed food and ultra processed food. And yet the veterinary community is like the exact opposite. And it's always, it's bizarre to me when you really start thinking about it. Absolutely. It's the only medical profession that's telling you to eat ultra processed food. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, it does not make any sense. And I know a lot of veterinarians because when I was at Notre Dame, I was the pre-vet advisor. So all the students at Notre Dame that wanted to go into vet school, I helped get into vet school. And I've had three of them respond positively to me. The rest have just ignored my inquiries and, you know, me saying, 
you know, contact me. I'll let you do the course for free. We want your feedback, you know, just totally ignored it, which is offensive to me in a lot of ways because I help them get where they are. They could at least engage in a conversation with me, (laughs) be respectful. And I, and I do know that they're busy. They have a lot else going on. They're thinking the last thing I need is to take on some more learning. And that's why getting the race certification uh, approval was so important because they have to do the CEs to keep their license. So if we give them that incentive, okay, so you have to do the CEs anyway. So why don't you learn something that your clients are trying, trying out? Don't you figure out a way to work with your clients and make sure that they are meeting the requirements. That's, that was my push to get that race certification. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad. I mean, I, I think the course would be amazing either way, but I think, like you said, it's so important that they're getting the credits for it towards their license that that's like that. Yeah, it gives them incentive to take it. Yeah. Um, and not just another thing I need to you know look at, but well, now I have incentive. I can at least get 10 of my credits that way for the license time. And yeah. normally they need between, you know, 15 and 20 a year, I think, depending on the state. Um, so that's 10 of the credits that they need. Oh, wow. So yeah, that's time. Yeah, yeah, intense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, when I very first started on this for journey with the dogs, but going back 10 years ago, the vet who I went to at that time was extremely combative to what we were doing. Mm. And anyway, it just, you know, so like I would lie um, (laughs) after that first time, you know, like I would like, I would lie. I would, um, you know, I didn't want to like have, you know, I was like non-confrontational about it, you know? Um, And then later when like uh, my dogs at that time, I had my old girls and they were both senior dogs at at the time that I was able to start feeding them raw. Well, a couple years later, they both got sick. And, you know, just because at this point they were now 12, 13, you know, 14 year old pit bulls. And, uh, and so I I remember like getting into a, like the vet called me a witch doctor because I wanted to go to acupuncture. And I think that was when I officially cut ties there, you know, but I mean, just there are vets who are extremely combative that do not want to be questioned by Mm. who are you, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, so I, I understand people's hesitancy and and struggles and, you know, a lot of pet parents, you know, like, I've always feel like I have this benefit, right, of like the fact that I do medical research in connection with my job and I feel comfortable digesting this information and and looking for certain things. And I know not everybody does, right? Like most people don't look at any of this stuff like ever and don't even know what I'm talking about, you know? And it's like, well, I trust the guy that went to the vet school, you know? White coat thing. Yeah. And they they trust their doctors the same way. And the bottom line is we have to be our own advocates and our dogs advocates and empower ourselves you know yeah and and that's exactly what I think our course and the workshops do they empower the dog parents to be able to be the advocate that you need and not go into the vet clinic you don't need to be combative you can be you know very I really appreciate you spending some time talking to me about this this is something I'm really curious about I'm really passionate about you know what are your thoughts on it and if you disagree then you can just politely say, okay, well, we disagree. And you can either choose to stay with that vet, or you can go and find somebody and look around and find somebody that you're more comfortable with. Yeah, you don't have to let them bully you. 
Um, you don't want to not tell them because there are some differences in blood work and you want them to know that that's how you're feeding your dog. I think most people say that their vet will be like, wait a minute, what are you doing? Their mouth looks good. Their skin looks good. You used to come in for ear infections. They're not having ear infections anymore. And so that's kind of the proof is in the pudding kind of thing when you're bringing your dog in that are very, very healthy specimens. That's the other thing I point out with vets is that we are encouraging dog parents to work with their veterinary team to get the blood work done, to have the hair tissue analysis done, to do gut analysis, to really work with them and make sure that all of the parameters are being met and that the dogs are remaining healthy. And so don't, we're not trying to bypass the veterinarian. And I think, you know, there it's just so many controversies with it. And veterinarians are so overworked that you would think that they'd be feeling, okay, if I can get some of this off my back, then I'm not going to be so overworked. It's just a hard sell, but one at a time. Well, I feel <laughs> like you guys are fighting the good fight and I'm so grateful for you, uh, for your time today. Oh, the Feed Real Summit. We have to talk about the summit too real quick. I think this might be airing afterwards, but I'm excited about it. Yeah, the Feed Real Summit, Ruby came up with it after we were in England for the Natural Dog Expo. And she's like, you know, the AHVMA is in our backyard this year. There's going to be all these vets in town. I want to hold a summit. And so that's why we're doing it, piggybacking it right off of the uh, AHVMA, we're hoping, and then vendors too will stay in town. But it really has blossomed. I mean, for us to get um, Rodney Habib to be our keynote speaker, um, people that have read the Forever Dog book, he's one of the he's the co-author with Dr. Karen Becker. Really excited to meet him in person. But we have Amy Renz from Goodness Gracious has so much information in her brain. <laughs> I love to just listen to all of the I geek out with her on stuff. Um, uh, Angie Arlino with CB Dog, CBD Dog Health. She's going to be an excellent speaker. Um, you know, we, we have, well, Kimberly's going to be there on the panel. You know, we just have all kinds of things planned. We're going to do a live workshop, uh, which I've never done a live one. It's all been virtual, <laughs> I, I, well, live, but in person. I've never done the in-person one, so I'm excited, I'm excited for, that. for that. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Um, and all the food that we are making for that is going to be ground into meatballs, dried, and then donated to the San Diego Humane Society for their behavioral department. I loved that. They can use for training their dogs. Yes. So, and we are going to donate twice what we make. So we're going to make a hundred pounds with the people that are actually doing the workshop. And then we're going to donate another hundred pounds. It'll be 200 pounds of dog food being sent over there from real dog. And yeah, it's going to be just a day packed full of like-minded people. These little expos, I, I've gone to a couple now. We went to the one in England and then we went to the one in um, Albany. Albany. Yeah. And then this one, we're going to the Thrive Pet Expo in Newport Beach uh, at the end of this month. Um, and I love these because it's all like-minded people. We just have such a great rapport with people and they're so eager to learn and they're so eager to talk about the course and talk about it's just, it's just so much fun. I love it. I love being with like-minded people like that. Yeah. There's a special energy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's a great, it's a great feeling because I've gone to the Albany uh, event the last two years in a row and it's very exciting. And my husband's kind of laughing because, you know, I'm very like introverted and he's like, all right, you're going to jump in a car. You're going to drive like 
how many states away to like go be around like 200 people <laughs> and i'm like you don't understand <laughs> like they're my but people they're, they're my people right? <laughs> exactly yeah and you know it's funny because i've been to conferences huge ones um for when i was in lab animal and it was fun i had a, a very good core group of people that i enjoyed going and talking with but it's not the same vibe it's not that you know it, yeah, this is just such like-minded people and we just all connect. And I, I, I don't know, it was the first one that we went to, the first one I went to like it was the one we went to in England. And I was so energized and it was the first time I had ever been abroad and people are like, you're talking about people, not even the places that you were at. And I'm like, well, I, yeah, London was great, but the people were, you know. Um, so yeah, I just really, really enjoy getting together with these types of people. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kay. I will make sure that we have links in the show notes. I want everybody to check out the Feed Reel, the workshops, the courses for pet parents. If you're feeling particularly froggy, you can do the veter- you know, the professional course too. <laughs> right. The professional course isn't just for veterinary professionals. Um, like I said, we've got it uh, certified for trainers and behaviorists, but anybody in the dog world um, if you're doing grooming, if you're doing dog walking, dog sitting, you know, you've just had a lot of your own dogs breeding, you're going to learn so much of it that way. The dog parent course, don't get me wrong, it's a great resource too. It's just not as academic, but you'll still learn a, a ton of it um, from that one too. And and practical stuff about how you can just go feed your dog. Yeah, that is, you know, I've taken, I think, five um, canine courses in the last two years. And ours is the only one that really has the practicality with it, which teaching at the university level, that was always my goal is that I'm going to teach you something, but I'm going to teach you how to use that knowledge. You're not going to just spit it back at me. It's all applicable to what you're going to use it for. And that's exactly how we've created the course. We want it to be, you you walk away and say, wow, I learned a lot and now I can use it. Right. (laughs) Well, I love it. Thank you so much for all your hard work, Kay. And thank you for your time. Oh, big sigh. Listening back to this conversation with Kay makes me have FOMO all over again about the fact that I wasn't able to attend the Federal Summit in October. I'm not sure if I've talked about it here on the Believe in Dog podcast, but Kimberly and I have certainly talked about it on the Alternative Dog Moms that my guy Nino has been dealing with a health issue since the end of September, and we were scrambling to get him looked at by different vets and had a bunch of different appointments for him, and I just had to cancel my whole trip out to California to try to get him better. He's kind of better now. Um, He's more stable but we still don't exactly know what's going on. So it's just been frustrating and a long, hard road that has had many sleepless nights for me because he seems to be really restless at night. It's been a whole thing anyway. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I did want to make sure that you know to check the links in the show notes to get access to the Feed Real courses. You can even just take the one day couple hour workshop on learning how to feed your dog. I keep wanting to sign up for it and it's always booked up because it's so popular. And if you sign up for the Real Dog Box subscription using my code Erin the Dog Mom, you'll get extra free treats in your first shipment. And as I share all this information with you, I also want you to know that no matter what you're feeding your dog, I know that you're doing the best you can as a pet parent, and I share this with no judgment, but because I'm so passionate that we have the right information and that we realize 
how much of what we think about what we're supposed to feed our dog is coming from the marketing departments of the companies trying to sell us dog food and that it's not coming from science and it's not coming from what's actually best for us to feed our dogs. And I'm just so passionate that we have all the information that we need to make the best decisions for our own health and our dog's health. I've had to do a lot of my own problem solving for both my health problems and my dog's health problems over these last 20 years. And realizing that we're actually the ones in charge, we're the ones that get to advocate for our care, we're the ones that are the consumers that have the power to make the decisions about what doctors we want, what diets we want, what foods we want, what treatments we want. We get to make those decisions. And that's been one of the most empowering lessons that I've learned. And I want to share that with you all too, by sharing with you the information that I'm passionate about spreading awareness for. So I'll get off my soapbox now. And that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. If you like this episode, remember that you can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much the biggest compliment that you can give a podcaster. You can always find me at Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook or at Erin the Dog Mom on Instagram. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.